On the acquisition side, the fact that we're having so many discussions about attribution is good because I feel like there's more there's more awareness of that. If you really want to drive customer acquisition, last click isn't necessarily the best way to do that. But on the retention side, I think that we're still me- measuring retention success on a channel basis and not on an audience basis. And the big missing piece that I see across organizations, you know, no matter the level of sophistication, is you're not measuring your baseline customer retention rate, which is how many customers would come back if you did no marketing at all. And it's the more marketing you do, the harder it is to measure that truly. But it's not even kind of in the conversation as far as like a success metric. So that, that I think is probably a big opportunity in the next like two to five years, hopefully more organizations adopting that perspective. Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for D2C founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alex Greifeld, an e-commerce consultant and writer of an amazing newsletter called No Best Practices. If you're not reading it, you're doing e-commerce wrong. We dig into her feelings about how companies should be thinking about acquisition and retention, why many companies of a certain scale shouldn't be spending on retention at all. Yes, it's a spicy take. And what kind of ads actually cut through her cynical marketing goggles? Alex brings it, and I'm excited for you to hear this one. Before we jump into the rest of the show, I wanted to share a little offer that we've cooked up exclusively for our podcast listeners. That's 15% off your first year of any paying plan on Pencil with code AC15. Pencil exists to help brands scale their creative production so that they can get to the business of testing more ads and finding new customers. We hope that this offer can help you do that. Now onto the show. Very excited to be joined on this episode of Ad Creative with Alex Greifeld. She is an e-commerce growth consultant and the founder of No Best Practices, my favorite newsletter in the game. Alex, thanks for joining us. Really excited to chat with you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to dive into your history a little bit, but for everyone who hasn't read No Best Practices yet, dumb, what do you talk about on a weekly basis with your readers? So I think if I had to sum it all up, I'd say No Best Practices is our mission is helping marketers think more like operators or business owners, because there are definitely different disciplines of marketing. Some people are chasing the top line. Some people are chasing really specific KPIs. But that doesn't all always ladder up to profitable growth at the end of the day. So my newsletter is is helping marketers kind of untangle all of that and drive really profitable growth for their businesses. Like I said, for anyone who hasn't hasn't read it, it's incredibly detailed. It's also very human. Uh, It sounds like someone who's just having a chat with you. It's not, um, it doesn't feel like you're reading something that's, um, that's very stuffy. So I I really, I love kind of the mix of high and low in there. Um, I, I really appreciate everyone should subscribe and we'll include it in the show notes. Well, I'm really excited to dive into your history and learn kind of about everything that you're, you've been doing things that you think people should be thinking about, but I want to go back. You started out as a designer. So how does one go from, you know, starting out as a designer to operating e-commerce DTC brands and then like going into becoming a growth consultant? Like, what did you study to become a designer and kind of what did you take from that experience that has helped you uh, going forward? 
I graduated high school in like the mid to late 2000s. So if you if you can try to think back that far, or for our younger listeners, if you can even think back that far, the the internet as a career and, and e-commerce and digital marketing, it definitely existed. But I mean, there was barely Twitter. Like there was no Twitter when I was in high school. There was no one telling me about what all of these different career paths and opportunities might be. So I was always very interested in the fashion industry. And I, strangely enough, like in high school, I viewed myself as purely a creative person, like not interested in numbers or analytics at all. So that's kind of where I was driven towards or kind of pulled towards. And um, I attended the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. I really wanted to go to school in Manhattan. So that was a great way to do it. And I studied design by the time I graduated, I actually graduated with a degree in merchandising, which is like more of the business aspect of design. I was working as a women's wear designer for three years, and it actually coincided with my graduation. I started working full-time halfway through college. I was doing this for, for close to three years, and then I came to this realization where I'm like, I'm never going to be fulfilled with this career path. And I'm also never going to make any money. And so uh, I'm going to be living with roommates till I'm like 45 if I keep doing this. So I knew I wanted to do something new. And at that point, there was a lot more in the media or just like a lot more discussion around e-com and digital marketing. So I transitioned careers. I took on a few kind of like transitional roles. And then eventually I was fully in e-com and, de- uh, and digital marketing. It's a funny one. I studied filmmaking. Where there's no money in that either. And so very quickly you learn, I either got to do something different or um, I've got to transition to the business side of this thing. So that's a really, not to poo-poo on anyone who wants to study arts and, and do do things that you're passionate about, just kind of understand what the game is and what, what it means. When you transitioned, what were you looking for specifically? Because obviously you went from in school going full design to merchandising. So there was some sea change there where you said like, this is probably maybe, again, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I see that this is interesting, the business side of things. And also that design is like maybe not as fulfilling as, as I wanted it to be. Did you find that transitioning to merchandising helped you move into digital because you didn't have that full on design background? I would say that my design role was actually like design merchandising hybrid. I worked for Jones, New York. And as part of that, I worked for Jessica Simpson's, one of her licensed collections. So what we did was closer to product development, which is kind of like a sub-discipline of merchandising than it was to purely, you know, know, draping dresses on a dress form and doing run and all that. My first role outside of design was actually, it was for a smaller company. And I basically, I was assisting their wholesale sales team, but I was also running their e-commerce store and email marketing. So that was kind of like a, a midway point between the two things. And then after that, I moved on to Viacom doing digital marketing for one of their TV networks. And so that was like truly... It was actually a very cool job. I was working with Facebook ads in like 2012, 2013 when they first came out. I think we either Snap... Yeah, I think Snapchat. We talked to like Snapchat when it was two people running the pool. We got to do things with YouTube. Like we got to do all this really cool stuff, but it was not 
it was not super performance focused. It was more about driving awareness for the, the programming on the network. That hasn't changed, by the way. That's a uh, decade later, still very awareness, uh, not very performance focused in the, uh, in the media industry when they're doing uh, media buys. So my wife worked at uh, Paramount, actually. So yeah, they treat their employees really well over there. So you moved from Viacom and you started working more predominantly with e-commerce brands. What were some of the things that surprised you moving into that? Because obviously you'd come from like merchandising, move towards working for Viacom, which is a completely different business. Like you said, also different kind of thought process in terms of driving, driving the business forward. Essentially, did you go in with misconceptions about how you were going to drive the business forward with your new roles coming from something like that? Because I think that's something we don't think about when we transition jobs is, yes, there are best practices that we take, but really there are no best practices. I'm sorry, I'm bringing it back, but there are no best practices we can take along and it's like a case-by-case basis. And we just use the things that we've learned and then retool them based on first principles Mm -hmm. to actually kind of deliver value to wherever we're going. So did you find there was any through lines there? Was it kind of like, ground zero. I know how to use this plat- these platforms. That's it. Well, my goal had always been to work for some kind of luxury fashion brand. When I was still designing, I was like, I'm going to do e-commerce for a luxury fashion brand. It took a long time for me to get there. And I think when I was at Viacom, again, just kind of like through through reading things on the internet, essentially, I became aware of the fact that there was this discipline of performance marketing. And so I knew the rough outlines of what that was. And I was like, okay, you know, I really want to transition from more of the brand marketing side to the performance side, because that's where I, what I feel will be the best for my career path long term. What surprised me most was probably like the specificity of running an e-commerce business. Like the fact that we got there and there was a daily sales target that we had to hit every day. And the fact that there was like a methodology behind forecasting the sales at a daily level. And then some of the other, basically like all of the little ins and outs of running performance marketing and essentially all of the analytics behind it. Like I knew, I knew that it was going to be a part of it, but I think actually there was definitely like a learning curve in absorbing all of that. So like, obviously I'm, I'm fast forwarding quite a bit. Do you find that because this was say five, six, seven years ago, maybe more that you transitioned and you're saying, I didn't understand essentially the breadth and depth of like the analytical portion of this kind of business model. Do you still find when you go and talk to brands or like take a look under the hood that they don't have the tooling right to be able to actually deliver against this? Because I think it's a really interesting one um, considering all of the, I don't know, things we read about and, and people tweet about with their you know marketing stacks in general. Because coming from tech, everyone's stack is pretty built out. Everyone has a really good sense of kind of how to get their analytics, what platforms to use, et cetera. So it's not, it's more like, who do you use? Uh, Not like, what do I use? Right. What's been your kind of like sense of that as you've watched this, uh, this industry grow and evolve? Are people still kind of behind the eight ball in terms of um, analytics and how they're tooled up? I would say that every organization I've worked uses last click as their, kind of like their guiding light. And um, I think they get put in a box by last click to varying degrees. But that's always been the starting point, like every single place that I've, I've stepped into. 
And sometimes that's surprising. Although my until I until recently when I started consulting, I haven't done a ton of work with true DTC launching an e-commerce store like no physical presence type of brands. So to a certain extent I can understand that. I think on the acquisition side, the fact that we're having so many discussions about attribution is good because I feel like there's more awareness of that. If you really want to drive customer acquisition, last click isn't necessarily the best way to do that. But on the retention side, I think that we're still measuring retention success on a channel basis and not on an audience basis. And the big missing piece that I see across organizations, you know, no matter the level of sophistication, is you're not measuring your baseline customer retention rate, which is how many customers would come back if you did no marketing at all. And it's the more marketing you do, the harder it is to measure that truly. But it's not even kind of in the conversation as far as like a success metric. So that that I think is probably a big opportunity in the next like two to five years, hopefully more organizations adopting that perspective. So when you say that, because I think it's, it's really interesting um, and important to talk about turning off marketing or like a go dark test, essentially, is, is that turning off all channels? Or is that say like, okay, if we're going for retention, this person has given us, you know, we have received revenue from this customer, we're going to see if we can get them back in the same time cycle that we usually do, say 30, 60, whatever. And we're not going to send them any comms. Is it like we're going to do that on a cohort basis and say like, you know, these next this next week, all these customers, we're going to do a holdout test with them and essentially not send them any comms and see if they'll purchase in that same 61.3 day window that everyone else kind of returns to the platform? Or is it like we will not market anything because they'll inevitably see something online about us is just impossible if they're kind of in market. So is it is it kind of everything or is it just we hold out against like all life cycle activities since they're already in our nexus, if you will? I mean, there are a few ways to do it. You can do channel level holdout testing to try to understand the impact of each channel on retention. Like you can hold out 10 or 20% of your email file for like a week or two weeks, which terrifies people. The other thing that you can do is you can just measure what your baseline retention rate is current state. You can say this past month was June. We had a pool of like 100,000 people who purchased in the last 12 months leading up to June. And we had a pool of like half a million people who purchased 30 months or greater into the past. How many, what percent of the pool purchased in July? And you can measure that rate over time and see, are the things that I'm doing generally pulling that rate up? And then you can kind of drill down on an audience basis and say like, well, we launched a new campaign and it's focused on reactivation. Like, is our reactivation rate going up? Hopefully you're able to hold out test within your audience. So you're able to say like, okay, we have a feeling that this campaign was successful. So those are some of the more tactical reporting frameworks that you can use that are more realistic to implement. Do you think that there's like a floor of traffic or data in terms of um, like runway, backwards looking runway you need to be able to do something like that? Or is that something that say, you know, a brand that 
has I don't know five thousand customers over the last six months can can kind of do something similar, or do not think that that's like a you know n of five thousand isn't enough to essentially kind of run something like that. So I'm going to give you a hot take right now. I think if you're doing <laughs> if you're doing under eight to ten million dollars in revenue per year, retention doesn't matter. Like your yes, like throw up a welcome series, do a new customer nurture, but like don't overthink it and hyper analyze it because the upside of bringing a ten percent improvement out of that, it, you know, it's nothing compared to the upside of unlocking additional efficiency in your paid acquisition. Retention really becomes big money the bigger the business gets. Yeah, that's interesting. I always, um, n- that was nice and spicy. That was, uh, what is it? <laughs> Taco Bell, that was the, uh, not the mild, not the mild sauce. That's the hot sauce. I always talk to people about how retention is the power plant of your business. and But I'm usually thinking that under the kind of like the auspices of, of SaaS. And so, SaaS really important to kind of have that lake of returning revenue also because there's kind of like referral um, and, and virality things that come uh, and like a viral coefficient that comes from that. One thing that when we interviewed uh, Ron from Avi, he said that I thought was really salient and is makes a lot of sense with what you're talking about is you need to have a obviously a much higher proportion of new customers coming in. And the idea is first, like you said, the revenue piece. Also, it's to put enough pressure on the business to be running everything properly. Because like retention, if you're not at a certain level where you can have a fully built out team that that focuses on that, and like that's a essentially a line item in your P&L unto itself, it's not just like, hey, we're just making money. It doesn't actually, it's not as meaningful as you think it is. Um, and everyone is essentially selling mm-hmm. you how meaningful it is. But new customers will drive, like you said, you to that eight figure place that you need to be to be focusing on retention. So I, I think it's that synthesized with kind of the pressure you need to put onto the business to be able to move forward and innovate is really, really um, important. So yes, my, we might do a mashup of those two clips together and say like, this is... Oh boy. <laughs> out of curiosity, what are the top misconceptions about what you do? And like, do your parents get it? Or are they kind of like, oh yeah, Alex, help people sell clothes. <laughs> my parents... I don't know. They both work in public education and they're also not huge e-com shoppers. Like my parents love Amazon and they still shop from catalogs. There are a lot of parallels between, I think, catalog marketing and e-commerce. But I think now, especially now that I'm freelance, they're just like, oh my God, I have no idea what you're doing. I can't think of many big misconceptions about what I do because I think no one has a clear enough picture of what it is I do to have any misconceptions, with the exception of other people who work in the industry, I think. And then they they typically get it. Yeah, it's one of those, uh, you know, the, the gifs where the person tips their hat to you. When you meet that person, you're like, oh, they see me. They understand what I go through. It's fascinating. So my dad is in is in fashion. He has an e-commerce portion of his, of his business. And um, even he, when I talk to him about kind of like B2B SaaS, AI, and he's like, what? What does that mean exactly? And like, because he's always off, like, you know, offloaded all the all that work to other people, so he has no idea really. And he's actually been. It's interesting. So I'm always curious about the kind of the how much teaching you've done with them about it, or is it kind of like a, hey, we're going to go off, and uh, this is just not something we're going to talk about. So 
Next thing I wanted to ask you about is um, when you're you're recruiting someone or someone's recruiting you to uh, to come and consult and advise them, what does like an ideal business look like that you're excited about? Just like what's the painting or the picture of that customer? The thing that I'm most excited about and one of the reasons that I went off and decided to open a consulting practice is I like working with people who share similar values and who to a certain extent, are bought into my perspective. A lot of my career has been working with with retailers who are managing things on a last-click basis and who don't have necessarily an understanding of like a customer view of a cohort or a cohort view of the business. And so helping guide them there has definitely been like a value-additive experience for my life and my career. But at this point, it's like I want... I want to move a little bit faster. So I, I want to work with people who, who are kind of like aligned with that perspective and who also just like share my personal values about the ways that we work and like the ways that you treat the people that you work with. Like that is incredibly important to me. Yeah, hundred percent. No assholes policy. So I'm, I'm, I'm fully, fully aligned with that. What trends are you excited about that you've been uh, sharing with your clients and also kind of with your with your community and uh, readers, like from a tactics perspective or from an I like the product perspective. I think it's more kind of like what what trends you're excited about. Either it can be tactics, it can be products. I'm sure, like we're talking about some tactics. So, like, what tactics do you think people should be focused on? And you could go in two directions: like ones that people are doing that you think are good, or ones that people aren't doing that you're kind of miffed that is not more um, top of mind for people? I think one of the things that I'm most excited about is I think there are some brands that do Facebook advertising that speaks directly to the customer really well. Like I think basically when I watch an ad with my cynical marketer's hat on and it still makes me intrigued about the product, even though it's something that's like completely irrelevant to me, that's when I know that it's a good ad. Or like, even when I'm writing copy for a product I would never use, and I'm like, hmm, maybe I actually would use it. Like, that's when you know that you've hooked into something. I won't name brand, like I won't list off brands, but there, I have a swipe file full of ads that I feel like are really um, speaking to a customer first and to like their concerns first. That's definitely one of the one of my tactics that I'm most excited about. So, uh, guys, we're going to have to bombard Alex to get access to that swipe file. That feels like there's a gold mine in there of stuff that she's, uh, she's put together. How do you feel, or what's a hack you think that people are saying is important that isn't actually as, as important as, um, kind of it's being made out to be online with other operators? Well, I would shoot down anything that someone called a hack. I was about to say, hacks, Chase, no hacks. I love the whole building in public movement. I love when people share their wins and insights. I think it's incredibly valuable if you digest it at a remove and you don't immediately jump to the conclusion of like, well, I've got to apply this to my business today because everything is so incredibly context-specific. Like your product and how consumers interact with that category is like the big lever that's going to determine 
what you should focus on, what's your tactic set, what should your strategic priorities be. So if I'm a footwear brand and I'm reading wins from a supplement brand, like that's not necessarily going to be applicable to me. So I'd say the wise use of hacks or the the wise, uh, I don't know, consideration of hacks is great. But if your strategy is ruled by things that people share on Twitter, you should reevaluate that. That's one that all the, uh, the thread boys should take with them. Something you just said, I harp on a lot, and I still don't think people put it into when they write a good thread or they, they give you tactics or you kind of dig in, is the context that is specific to your brand, your vertical, and, and your audience subset is completely different than anyone else. You could be in like in the same category as someone and your context is completely different because products are different, margins are different, the you know, spends are different. And um, I think where we go 80-20 here are tactics. It's almost like it should be 80-20 here are here's context around the brand. And then we layer on some of the tactics that, that makes sense. You're working with a lot of different brands. And so you you as a person from knowing you online, uh, cut, cut through all of that. Do you think that there is a way for people to cut through that? Or is it just like a personal thing where they're going to have to fail and figure it out? Has it been something essentially you have armored yourself with over time through just experiences? Or is it something like, okay, this is just innate to, to me, Alex, that I know like, this is bullshit. This is not, and I'm going to move on. I try not to paint things with the bullshit brush unless I feel like, um, the person giving the advice really trying to just push it on everyone without trying to understand the context. I think like sharing wins is great. You're not out there with a gun to anyone's head saying like, okay, you must send your ads to landing pages or you're never going to win. I think there's another aspect of it, which is that your own personal career context determines your goals. So like in a lot of organizations, the reasons why the perspectives are, or the reason why focus is shifting in a certain direction and certain KPIs are like, people just can't get unstuck to them. It's because that's what's incentivized and that's how you get promoted. And my evangelizing about no best practices isn't going to change that if my no best practices are going to get you, you know, stuck in a career rut. So uh, to a certain extent, I understand that. And That's why I have the newsletter. I'm like, okay, just go read this. And if it resonates with you and you're ready to take action on it, come talk to me. But if not, like, go do your thing. (laughs) I think that comes back to kind of the core ethos of the whole thing. There's no best practices. So here are some of my thoughts, but this is not a best practice. These are just my POVs based on these amount of experiences I have had and research that I've done. Take it, do with it what you will and go with God, essentially. And if it's good, it's good. If not, it's not. What do you think right now is a little like overhyped that we're all dealing with um, in the DTC space? Hmm. It's hard for me to answer that question. You know what? This is a little bit of a spicy take, but I think um, Web3, Metaverse, crypto is it. And I, again, it's like a if you're in that because you you have a like a true pure interest and love in the technology and the space, that's great. But I feel like it's not going to solve anyone's problems in the next one to two years necessarily. Like if you're you know you're a DTC business and you're facing headwinds, macro headwinds, 
like crypto is not going is not necessarily going to be your unlock. I think that in our generation, the thing that when we're 80 is going to be shocking to us. Like, you know, our grandparents are probably shocked by our phones and social media and like the way people dress today is going to be uh, the fact that like younger generations spend so much time and invest so much in the metaverse. Like, I think that's almost inevitable. I don't necessarily like it. I don't think it's going to solve anyone's near-term problems. So it's kind of like, it's, is it important to the future? Yes. Do I think that IRL is important and we should fight to save it? Also, yes. But that's, that's kind of, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot, of, um, a lot of DTC talk has been pulled in that direction. So it's interesting you bring that up. I haven't talked about it much. One thing I have like a, just a belief in terms of all technology is there's always this like first mover wave. We've all seen the bell curve of innovation, right? First mover wave, but like most of those products are not ready for prime time. So like even use Facebook ads at the beginning, right? It's like people weren't doing it. Then everyone was doing it. Now it's oversaturated and people are moving to other channels because it's more expensive. Um, even though you get better customers off of it, that's another topic. Same thing goes for Web3 where like it's cool, it's interesting, but like the technology is not ready for prime time, especially kind of given what you said is macro headwinds in your face. If you're staring down the barrel of, a couple of quarters not going well and you don't have like a, a big cash reserve to innovate with, how are you going to go and spend all of your innovation like budget on, on that where you could be I don't know, focusing on much like more impactful and tactile things now. So I'm completely agree with you. It'll be interesting to see when it is ready for prime time to deliver. Cause I do think there are some fun experiential things that they can do for fashion as a vertical, for instance, I think is going to like Web3 is going to really benefit fashion in general for the e-commerce experience. But yeah, Web3 is definitely um, top of my list. And I agree with you. I think that virtual products are going to become the new base of every brand's pyramid, like cosmetics and fragrances for luxury today. And at the other end of the spectrum, I think real life itself is going to become a luxury product because the past, you know, 20, 30 years, the, the cost of travel and of um, the cost of travel has gone down and there's been more broad exposure. Like the fact that I'm, I live in the, the middle of the country and I can get a pineapple or whatever for under $5. Like I think to a certain extent that is going to get chipped away at. And so real life will become the luxury experience. So it was a luxury product, you know, like you said, 30, 40 years ago, and we will kind of move. I mean, it's a luxury product right now. Have you looked at hotel prices in Europe right now? It's a, it's obnoxious. No, I had my kid. I'm like, I'm not even going to look at Europe because that's, I'm, there's no way in hell I'm taking a trip to Europe. <laughs> yeah, we went and we were like, I just, we went in January before the baby was born and looked at the prices. Anyway, we're talking about like the, the luxury and kind of what, what's happened. Mm-hmm. It's funny because the acceleration of people wanting to do stuff in real life is really interesting. And I think maybe this is my spicy take, but the fact that people are doing more stuff in real life over the last say three, six months and will continue to based on coming out of this pandemic will actually slow down the uh, speed at which web three is going. Because like, if you think about when web three, we're going off on a total tangent right now, but when web three started getting popular, <laughs> it was kind of like later stages of being full pandemic, 
And so people were very much like, how do I optimize my in-home experience? Oh, Web3, oh, this is going to be incredible. Everyone's, now they're outside, they can do stuff like, fuck this. I don't want to, <laughs> I want to go and, and experience stuff. Um, and so like things have become literally, it's like ad placement. So hotels are ad placement. It's become scarce. Um, so there's not as much inventory. So pricing has gone up. What do you tell DTC founders or what would you tell a DDC founder that's starting out or an operator that's starting out? What should they be thinking about and trying to learn to help them, you know, like you said, operate a business at a high level and kind of get to that 10 figure place where they can start thinking about retention, for instance? There are two ways that you can look at starting a business. You either have an idea for a product and it sets you on fire. And so you're completely product, you, the product leads the strategy. Or you're a channel expert, like you're a person who's really good at running Facebook or TikTok ads, and you're like, I'm going to design a product that works with the channel. So be clear about which one of those strategies you're pursuing, and then lean into it. And if you are a product-led brand, don't try to stick yourself into the Facebook box if you don't fit. If you're trying to launch a luxury fashion brand, and you know your AUR is $1,000. I don't think that unless you have like a huge pile of cash sitting around somewhere, I don't think that Facebook ads is the right venue to launch that brand. Like you need to, you need to launch it, you know, in wholesale with like a select group of partners because they have done the work to find that really niche audience that's going to buy your product. On the flip side, if you're doing the channel first product, second thing, make sure the product is actually good. Because that's the key to <laughs> that's the key to success. That's the key to retention and longevity is the the quality of the product. I think what you just said is so interesting. Uh, I was on a, a Twitter space with um, Barry, John Coyle, and Archit, and we were talking about is creative the biggest lever. And someone came on and they had gaming chairs and they wanted to talk to us and ask us our POV. And they've been running Facebook ads, like you said, and the gaming chairs were fifteen hundred dollars. And he's like, well, I've been running them. I can't figure it out. I'm doing all this different creative. And it's a fascinating thing you just said, which is there is a lot of times if you don't have brand equity, there is a ceiling on the products that you can launch on certain channels and what people will buy off of those channels. So is that something you have seen in general? Because I've marketed pretty expensive products on on Facebook, but I had like a lot of I had a lot of money to spend on it. So I I had like we had essentially cash reserves. And we understood like what we could give on, on CAC on new or an NCPA to be able to sell this product. And we still had really good margins on it. Is that something that you've seen people try to do too often where they say like, well, Facebook ads has a low minimum scope, so I can throw these up pretty quickly. And they essentially get burnt out on it because it's not a place to actually be selling that kind of product. Because what you said, and I'll, I'll cede the floor of the Senate in, in this moment, what you said about um, wholesalers having done all the work. We don't think about that enough. Wholesalers have built a huge infrastructure. They know how to sell their products. They know how to merchandise their products. They know what they're buying and what they have a much better sense of who their customers are than any e-commerce brand does, especially someone that's more like is nascent in the space. So short question, have you seen customers or people launch too expensive of products and get kind of burned out by the fact that the ads aren't converting? What I've seen more in my personal experience is, and, and I have a lot of experience in the fashion category, which is why I keep bringing it up. 
but there fashion brands in the contemporary advanced contemporary luxury price point. So like AUR is at least $500 for like a top. They built out a wholesale business. They kind of put up an e-commerce store in the mid 2010s. There was this um, macro wave of people shifting their shopping habits online. And in addition to the fact that just like marketing online was a lot less competitive back then. And so they have this very basic strategy where we'll we'll add 10% to the wholesale buy, put all those units online and like run some Google branded Google search. And like that has been, that works for a really long time. And then they hit a point where it's like, well, customer acquisition becomes a problem because that's not, you're letting the macro environment do all your customer acquisition for you. So then they want to do channels like Facebook that are more pure acquisition, but they, they either start to work with the wrong partners who don't actually leverage it as an acquisition channel, or they have unrealistic expectations about what they'll need to spend to find their customer at that price point. Like my, my rule of thumb is whatever your, your AOV is that you're targeting, you do creative testing at lower budgets before this, but like once you've landed on something you feel strongly about, you need to spend at least, at least like two to four times that a- AOV. So you're giving yourself a shot at winning like two to five conversions a day. Like that is the bare minimum. Otherwise you just never, you're not going to going to leverage the, the advantages of Facebook's machine learning and yada, yada, yada. Um, and so a lot of brands don't necessarily want to hear that or they don't have the cash flow to support that. So then it's like, okay, feature the lower lower AUR portion of your assortment or design a capsule. Make a make a scented candle. Like do something to get your AUR under $250 uh, to make it more palatable for you. But that's kind of like the I think that happens to founders and, and founders in other categories too, but it's like a big a big drama or a big cycle that I see play out in fashion a lot. hundred percent. That's a very fascinating one when you talk about essentially how do you balance volume, like the volume of like audience that you're able to target and the speed at which you're able to do that with the amount of money that you have on hand to be able to do that. And like you said, I think this is probably number one thing everyone should take away from that one is like, go in with your eyes wide open about what the channel can deliver for you. because People come say, well, the Facebook ads aren't working. It's like, Steve, you didn't set, you don't have realistic expectations. You didn't set up your campaigns properly to win for you. We're going to transition now to the anti-rapid fire. As you can see, I'm, I'm long-winded. So the questions have usually long-winded answers. Where do you get your, your best ideas? I think from reading a lot and letting it percolate, it's kind of like the creative process. It's like synthesis that's running in the background and then you'll wake up and have an idea. That's great. And what, I don't know, just because now I'm curious because I want to know what you're reading. What sources are you reading? Are you just pulling a bunch of random stuff or are you cross-training and saying, hey, I don't want to read anything that's kind of marketing and psychology and these things. And I want to read, I don't know, this is because I'm reading about, it. I'm reading about Thomas Edison right now. So I'm reading a book on Thomas Edison. It gives me an idea for, for marketing. Where do you source those ideas? I read for pleasure and not for the specific purpose of generating brilliant ideas. <laughs> I, th- I read a lot of fiction. I love good storytelling, like fiction where you're where you're just completely transported to the person's 
perspective and you're almost like, how did this person even write this? Like, I love uh, books like that. I read a lot of, I mean, I'll read like, you know, your typical business and marketing, content, but then I'll also read about strange places, remote locations, <laughs> I don't know, Reddit threads, <laughs> newsletters. I like to read things that actually I strongly disagree with. Like if I come across something and I'm like, reading that actually makes me angry. I'll read it just to see if the person can persuade me otherwise and then try to like reverse engineer what it is about their persuasion that was so effective. So I I would just say, I, just, I you know, I like to consume content almost to the extent where I, it makes me worried I'm going to like drift off into the metaverse. <laughs> I hear that. My, my wife always uh, jokes with me. She's like, you literally have a AirPod in your ear at all times. She's like, she's like, can you not hear me? You're not listening or you're listening to something else. And she never actually knows. So I to- totally understand that. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think from a tactical perspective, my like top level manager at Viacom introduced this framework to me of objective strategy tactics, which is so straightforward. But being in that environment where you have so many shiny toys, it's like such an important work to lead with. But I think more important than that is the advice that I've gotten on, I guess, the soft skills side of career development. And and some of it has been, like at various times, I've been told that I'm my delivery is too harsh or my delivery is not harsh enough. Like I, I think it's a combination of of understanding, I guess the the first principles are like the dynamics of career advancement, and then kind of at a certain point, you're almost like in a situation where people are just you know kind of criticizing you to criticize you, and realizing that like okay, maybe I need to lean into my strengths instead of trying to like hyper optimize my weaknesses, or maybe I need to design a situation that plays to my strengths so that my weaknesses aren't you know a game killer. So that I think has been, I, even more than any tactical advice, has been the most valuable thing that I've gotten. I think that's a really important one for people to understand. And it's like, thank you for sharing that is a lot of times we sit there and we're like, okay, this is my weakness. People are honing in on it. If it's something that's super glaring and causing problems for you, like absolutely spend a huge amount of effort and time doing it. If it's a small thing and you know that these other three things that can keep me like winning and like are the essential, like you said, from first principles, the things that actually deliver career advancement, just be exceptional at those things and tinker with the other stuff along the way. Kind of know, know that you're, you're going over there, but I'll bring it back to your reference, right? Until your $10 million brand, like retention isn't that big of a deal. It's kind of the same thing with your, like, if you know that these are the things that will advance you and you're great at. Focus on that. Get your retention right later. Uh, you can you can work on that as you go. So, next question: What skill do you think has served you best in life? I think for the first part of my career, it was my ability to synthesize information and understand what was going on and what was important in a given situation. I think for the second half of my career, it's storytelling and being able to to take concepts that are maybe like abstract or complicated and frame them in a way that's and entertaining i love that 
And then my, my final question is what principles, and this doesn't have to be business principles, this can be personal principles, have evolved over time from all the experiences you've had, say, since you graduated college till now, that feel foundational that you wish you had known back then? So like if say, uh, I don't, I won't let people bully me, for instance, uh, and you didn't know that and you let people, because all young kids usually get bullied in their first couple of jobs by people. And so like, how do you communicate that? So what would be something you think um, you wish you could have given yourself back then? That the reward for hard work is more hard work. So you have to step out of the, um, what is like the insecure overachiever month and think about what you really want to get out of your career and also out of life and like move intentionally in some direction. And it's okay if it's different than what other people want, or it's okay if it's different than what you've been pursuing for the past however many years. I think that's, I thought I had another one, but it flew out of my mind. But yeah, I would say that's the big one. Yeah, that's great. That's a great place to, uh, to close off. Alex, thank you so much for doing this sharing your expertise, letting us know that there are no best practices and there are no hacks and you just got to get it done. Really excited to kind of continue to watch you grow and, and for people to listen to this episode and learn from you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. Oh, and they should reach out to you on Twitter. It is, uh, Hey, it's Alex P, right? That's your, that's the handle. Right. Right. That's my Twitter handle. Cool. And uh, we'll link out, check out No Best Practices. It's nobestpractices.co. Right. Great. Cool. Uh, well, we'll link that out. We want to make sure everyone is reading that and learning from you and, uh, you know, messaging you back and disagreeing. <laughs> yeah. I love that engagement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor, if you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks. <laughs>